You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, if the words Opus Prime, Storm Financial, Insider Trading, Forgery, Faulty, Unneeded Insurance and bank bill swap rate manipulations mean anything to you, well, this is the show for you because on today's episode of The Renegade Economist, we're talking to Denise Braley, who's the president of the Banking and Finance Consumer Support Action Group. You can find them uh, at bfcsa.com.au. They're also all over Facebook. And Denise, uh, the Banking Royal Commission uh, is well underway. You spent last week in Melbourne. What was your interpretation of the events that took place? Well, well, uh, I think, first of all, let me say, I thought that the senior counsel, Rowena Orr, and indeed uh, the commissioner, Kenneth Hain, are doing a marvellous job given the scope and, and the narrowness of the scope they've been given. But obviously there were some there's some issues there, and the biggest one I think is this, is that only five days allocated to look at mortgage fraud in any debt is by far short of what is necessary. Mm, they've, they've only been given one year, and uh, I saw one commentator state that uh, they need at least half a decade to get anywhere on this. How is the Royal Commission uh, planned out over the next 12 months? What can we expect to see? Well, it won't be 12 months, Carl. I mean, it, it, it sounds like that, but the interim report is due in September. So there'll be a gap there of about a month preparing for that, I would imagine. And the same after Christmas into January when the final report is put down. And, uh, you know, we're heading into April. So that we've probably only got about seven months maximum left to spend on this issue. And uh, as I understand it, they're going into financial advice for the next round of hearings and there will probably be two or three months spent on superannuation that's it mm, yes and of course mortgage fraud is the area that you've spent uh, decades investigating uh, i was uh, staggered to see philip seuss in the the guardian writing under the heading a banking inquiry has already exposed shocking corruption but it needs more time and uh, philip quoted the ubs as saying there was nearly one third of all mortgages were uh, subprime-esque some 500 billion dollars uh, according to ubs and i looked up uh, the last time you were on our show, way back in 2012, on show 250, uh, you were talking about $57 billion worth of loans. So there's been a, a huge growth in these fraudulent practices. So what is one of the most common forms of trickery the banking uh, industry engages in? It's not just about a few errors or wrong information or fraud, whatever you want to call it, on the loan application form. We found that in 2001. That's been out there a long time. We've been trying to push the fact that everybody should demand a copy of the loan application form. It's a 12-page document. Most people, when they see it, will think, my goodness, I've never seen the other eight pages. I've only seen three pages 
of this document, if it's an 11 or 12 page document, whatever. But the problem is that the three or four pages they did see were mainly small print to say, I fully understand everything in this document, which of course they've never seen. So there are only three pages where signatures are required. And they are the three pages that are presented to the customer when they apply for a loan. They don't see the other pages. They're actually an internal set of pages attached to the one you signed. And that is uh, uh, skullduggery at its highest level, yet that's not being addressed anywhere. But the main problem we've got, I suppose, is the fact that all of these mortgages are approved and most of them are unaffordable loans. Why? They were hitting ARIPs. That is asset-rich, income-poor people. People with a modest home, it might be in a nice suburb, so the land is worth a fair bit. But the point is the banks saw that as an asset grab, an equity release uh, product was put out for that purpose. And the people were spruced. They didn't walk in a bank one day and ask for a loan. Without doubt, they they are saying, we, we didn't think about this. We didn't wake up one morning and decide to go and buy a second house. We've, it took us 30 years to pay off one house, let alone buy a second one. But someone knocks on the door or they get phoned. And this is all orchestrated by the banks. Or they go to a Creating Wealth seminar, which are funded by the major banks. And this is how they get the banks get people in and signing up. It, this is a good retirement plan for you. If you're on a pension, as a lot of these older people are, then we can help you out by getting you into a retirement program so you don't need the pension anymore. And that is the spiel. That's not what we're looking at in the Royal Commission. And that's why we need a bigger extended Royal Commission. Wow. So they're actually targeting the asset rich, income poor and saying, look, you should leverage upon your equity you have in your house to take out a second mortgage uh, to buy an investment property. Now, what sort of mortgages are they recommending to these uh, uh, newbie investors? Oh, that's a good one, Carl. Yes, the people don't know these are interest-only loans. Now, some of the people I talk to do, but most do not. I would be conservative in saying probably 70% of people definitely didn't know that they had an interest-only loan when I, they first ring me. So because all those people didn't know, they thought they were just getting a mortgage. It's sold as a mortgage, a normal mortgage with less documents needed. And for most of the time until two years ago, they were called low docs. And the issue there is that it really hits on the misleading and deceptive conduct because what happens after that five-year interest-only period expires? Well, there's something else we've found out because we are the only group in Australia dealing at the grassroots level with borrowers. UBS doesn't even talk to a borrower that I'm aware of. I don't know where they get their surveys from. It's not 30% of the loan book. It's 80% of the loan book. How do I know that? Not just talking to borrowers. I also surprisingly talked to a high number of bank managers and brokers whom we call the sellers, the agents of the banks that are selling these products. And they often get into difficulty themselves and come to me for help. So I understand exactly how the spiels work, 
how the product is sold, what the target market is being. Uh, I understand all that. That's my work. That's what I've been doing. And in doing so, I found that uh, at least 80% by the sellers are sold of this particular interest-only product. 80%. So I don't know where Apple's getting its figures on. I do. Apple gets its figures from the bank. Apple passes them on to Treasury, but it also sends it to BIS in Switzerland. So we've been saying for a long time they are fake stats. This is nothing to do with 30 or 40% of the loan book. The big scandal here is more like 80% in reality. Wow, we've been talking about interest-only loans and what a danger they are way back since about 2010. So it's staggering that it's taken this long for uh, it to really become a worry. And and part of that worry is that after this five-year period, the interest rate payments jumped some 50%. So uh, some of these... uh, uh, asset-rich, income-poor types are uh, facing a tidal wave of uh, mortgage payments coming, and uh, it seems that uh, the uh, majority of these people, their uh, interest-only contracts are going to expire during 2020. What the banks have got in line, they did this with the 10-year point. It started in about 2000, and they created 10-year interest-only loans, which if they had told the customer these are bridging loans for 30 years, people wouldn't have had a bar of it. Am I right, Carl? Yes. And so if people are told that this is an uh, interest-only 30-year loan, it's like an old bridging loan, older people understood the word bridging. You only got a bridging loan for one year to tide you over while you're selling a house or something like that. I mean, it was an extremely expensive loan, which this is. Interest only is not about the 4% they sell you on in the beginning. It's the fact that the fees can escalate up to 14%, and they don't know that. It's like paying off a house on steroids. But the problem here for these people, you know, I don't want to label them ARIPs, but that was the name the bank gave them. That's the bank, the name the bank told the sellers to look for these ARIPs. They picked out an example of a lady in Chatswood sitting on a million-dollar property back then in 2005, and that's what they were all promoting to the sellers and have been since then. So everyone of these sellers have been out looking for people that own their own home, mums and dads that have no debt, but many of them are on a pension. So they hit the pensioners. And these people aren't paying the payments. So how can they afford to pay a home, a second home off when they own their own home? How are they paying that out of a pension? And that's the whole trickery of the selling program that even the sellers get caught with. They're told to practice on their parents first with a parental guarantee and, and the parents lose their own home. It's a shocking thing. And this is what we wanted the Royal Commission to expose, but it's not allowed to go there under the terms of reference. Goodness me, Denise Braley, that is uh, shocking that uh, there are strategies in a way to, to, as you say, uh, land grab uh, supposedly the most solid citizens in the community. they're uh, ripe for taking as well. So uh, just how far is the banking industry gone over time? Uh, it, it seems like this practice of 
engaging in corrupt practices, borderline practices, uh, is something that uh, they can just include as a, a cost of doing business. Is that what has happened? Yes, they've, they've reached the stage of we're too big to fail. And it becomes then the argument of the moral hazard. That's where they see themselves. But the point is they've started this roller coaster and it's really Ponzi financing. It's, it's actually, as William K. Black and Philip Sousa's mentioned many times, it, it is a, a, a book that describes what a controlled fraud is. And of course, that's what happened in America, only in a slightly different fashion. And I've read that book a couple of times. It's quite an interesting read. But this is what we're having in Australia right now, a control fraud, where even the cartels themselves, and people don't like that word. In fact, we're not supposed to, under the ACCC's um, authority, run a cartel. But they're all admitting on the stand, at least that came out in the Royal Commission, no one wants to be first horse out of the box. So they're all doing the same thing. We know that. The forms are the same, the spiels are the same, the target markets are the same. But that, as you boarded on, it is, uh, I will call it, it's a criminal offence, asset stripping. And I'm saying that what I've seen is they are asset stripping. But are any of our authorities going to look at that? No one wants it. It's like pass the parcel. But that is what we've got. Now, you ask the very serious question, what happens when these 10-year periods are up? Well, I was saying that way back, they were 10 years to start with as a bridging loan, right? And then they would, the banks always intended to take the asset because you weren't affording. That's why they're unaffordable. You weren't affording, if you were mum and dad, you weren't affording to pay the payments out of your own pension, were you? So how were they affording to keep the payments up on time every month? Because the banks will give you lines of credit, extra personal loans, top-ups. They've got names for them all. They're mainly called buffer monies. And they add an extra 50 grand onto the debt, which pushes the LVR up. And the LVRs are around about an average of 140% if you just worked it out on the property they purchased. So they don't ask the couple for a deposit. And because they don't ask for a deposit, which the couple might have to put on it, uh, then they, they cross-collateralize the security over their own home, which is the worst thing you could do. You've just put your home at risk and they're not told the risk. Shocking listeners, we're, we're talking with Denise Braley from the Banking and Finance Consumer Support Action Group, bfcsa.com.au. And Denise, uh, these stories, they, they are shocking in detail, but uh, let's have a look. I mean, when we're talking control fraud, we're talking about practices that banks know they may be caught for, but recognise that the profits well outstrip any sort of fines that uh, are going to evolve from that. And part of the, the, the control element is having this arm's length distance between themselves and the people on the ground. And that's where the mortgage brokers come in. Is that one of the systemic problems with the, with the mortgage industry? 
Well, yes, there's been a lot of discourse about that in terms of brokers, the commission structure, the commission leads to other problems as well. But ASIC has been busy little bees for the last 15 years trying to blame the brokers, but we forget 55% of these loans, and, and, and the banks have just switched that figure to 45, I've noticed, they switched it round. But anyway, last year they were saying 55% of all loans sold are sold internal to the banks themselves by bank officers and bank managers. But I'm letting you know, Carl, and your listeners, that every one of those loans are identical in the way they're sold, the way they're marketed, the traps, the risks, and the target pe people targeted for these loans that have got an asset. So the banks are after the asset. And this was not done in America. Remember, in America, uh, some were, but mostly it was ninja loans, people that didn't have a house and, and might have had bad debts. This wasn't. They targeted the older people that were established that worked all their lives for their own home. So you're quite rightly saying what happens when these people can't, uh, when the 10 years is up and later it was five years. So what happens when these five years are up in 2020? That's what you asked me. Well, I can answer that now. Because in 2020, when all these the five-year periods expire, the banks internally have been for the last 15 years, just giving you another 10 years. Mm. So the game rolls on. I mean, the, yes, the media have been out there saying loud and clear the falsehood that uh, everything will co collapse when these five-year periods are reached. I mean, these five-year periods are reached every year in the last 15 years. It doesn't alter anything. The loans keep going as long as the people borrow more money. So the more the the bubble got higher and the more the market pumped up, then the banks just used the equity in your house. If you had extra equity, they would give you another 50 grand to play the gravy train another two years. That's right. And uh, with population numbers growing and more and more elements of uh, housing policy fraud coming through to, to sucker now first home buyers back into the market. Yes. And all the warning signs are there. They've already been written by, you know, economic experts that understand these things better than I do, but I can see them. And, and uh, you know, my area is criminology. But the point is that I can see the criminal aspects of what is going on. But in terms of the economy, you've got higher figures of homelessness now, for one. You've got a massive vacancy rate now, which I think is underreported. And so you've got all these things happening, um, which suggests that we've got something terribly wrong with all these units in particular that were put on at a very high price. And, uh, and now those uh, property prices will start coming down. Yes, well, that's the big question, isn't it, Denise Braley? Will uh, the housing market ever correct uh, the size of the debts involved, the size of... Uh everyone's asset values is just so important to our overall financial wealth. Uh, it's it's a, a big challenge for the political system to keep it all afloat. But uh, let's go back to the Royal Commission. Uh, for a long Ooh. time, you've been fighting for this. Uh, what sort of uh, legal precedents will this put in place? What sort of opportunities will it open up for people who have been uh, defrauded by the banks? Well, the Royal Commissioner is very astute, very matter-of-fact. He's not taking any nonsense in, in his commission. 
but the point is he's limited by the terms of reference. It was deliberately put that he can only look at whether these standards are below community standards. That's just appalling. They're just so weak water, he's got nowhere to move. He's got a few things up his sleeve that he can do, but he can't get to the real hub of the problem unless he starts really understanding, reading 2,000 letters of submissions that have gone in there from people suffering from this problem is not going to give him the answers he needs because unless these people have spoken to me in the first place and I've had a chance to look at their documents, they don't know what the fraud is. They don't know what's happened to them. They're feeling like silly old moves as though they should have made a better decision. And that's how the government wants to keep them like that. So they stay silent. They're embarrassed. So these issues get an airing at the uh, Royal Commission. Does that then lead to any legal precedents or any sort of evidence that can be used in following court cases? We've already won the court cases. There's nine court cases. There's nine precedents set all the way to the high court. We don't need to win more cases because most people in this situation don't have money to go to court anyway. So it won't help the people that way, will it? They're mired in debt. If you're mired in debt, you can't afford a lawyer. You can't fight it in court. That's why people come to me. That's why consumer groups spring up when there's, uh, this is not my job. I'm retired now. I do this to help the community. Uh, and my people come from all over Australia and some from New Zealand, where it's the, it's the same thing over there by the same bank. So have any of these nine court cases been class actions? I mean, how can the legal system act to protect these people? Yes, there's a possibility of a class action through a Royal Commission, but not what I've seen come out in the evidence to date. No, not yet. And I don't see it coming later. The time's up. He's already finished with all that. He's done loans. He's done insurance, car loans, mortgage fraud, uh, Commissioner Hayne. And that's it. You need two years on this subject. I, I don't want to do a comparison, but uh, with uh, abuse of children, but you remember that as a as a royal commission, that was called for for two years and it ran for five. Mm. This is just a little airbrush of a look at what's going on in the banking sector, and they haven't called the big banks yet in to give evidence. But they're not going to tell you the things I'm telling you. So you need people that understand their own case that have investigated their own case and understand it and put them on the stand in a royal commission. And they understand how they've been diddled and how the banks managed to get them to sign up on these arrangements uh, with not telling them any risks of the product, because it is a risky product, not telling them any risks of the markets or what they should be worried about. The farmers have been caught in much the same way just with bigger amounts of money, the aim was to grab the asset. Now, until people start working that out, uh, they're just going to be like uh, cannon fodder of just losing their homes and they're getting older now and then they won't be around anymore to tell the story. But the families, there will be a ripple-down effect, I believe, Carl. The, the families will be that upset at the inheritance loss, for one, 
but the fact of the way their parents were treated by the banks. This will tarnish the image of the banks. Uh, mark my words, it will tarnish it for the next three generations because that's what happened after the 1929 collapse. It certainly did. I love talking to old timers who, who are so sceptical of the banking industry because of similar sort of grabs that went on back in those days when people were brought to their knees. Now, in terms of protecting themselves, the banking industry uh, is always uh, three or four steps ahead of us. And uh, I was shocked to hear from our listener, George Mav, that uh, there was a, a bail-in bill presented to Parliament and passed uh, just in February this year. How does that make you feel, seeing this spread? I was about to load that up from my website this morning, um, uh, and it will go on there. But, yes, I mean, Tony Abbott uh, just ran that through with seven people, just very sneaky, uh, and, of course, then we've got bailing. What we need is a glass steggle. We need a glass steggle in Australia. People that don't know what that is, Senators back after the 1929 crash in America called Senator Glass and Senator Spiegel, and they cobbled together in, in I think it was 31 to 33, uh, to regulate banks. And that's what we need to do. We need to re-regulate our banks and bring them back into line. They can't be trusted to run institutions on their own uh, without consumers watching what they're doing and understanding these products. That's what needs to happen. Uh, and I think there will be a huge cry now for Glass-Steggall, whether um, either side are uh, opposed to that for uh, reasons that the banks don't want it, but the consumers do, and there's more of us than there are banks. Denise Braley, uh, look, that concept of a bail-in, not enough people yet know about it. What are the dangers you see for the community as uh, Australia's never-ending economic bubble continues onwards uh, whilst things get riskier and riskier? What does it mean for our savings? Well, it's really an insurance uh, that the taxpayer is insuring that if the banks do bad things, and they engage in fraud and criminal conduct and asset trimming, which they're doing, uh, and false and misleading products and everything of, above. They are not going to be accountable. They're just going to keep on business as usual, doing exactly what they're doing in the future. And you work all your lives for a house and the bank will come and find a way to get you to sign up for a product so that you lose your house within five years. That's the plan for you, your retirement plan. So that the bail-in is there for the insurance that if everything else goes wrong, uh, um, as per our discussion this morning, uh, then um, the banks can just take that uh, out of your, uh, or the, the government can take it out of your bank account in order to um, bail the banks out. That's why it's called a bail-in. So whether you like it or not, it happened in Cyprus, you've got to... Um, uh, find that maybe, I don't know what the figure set is, but let's just say it's 10% and the government will take 10% out of your cash deposit. So all those people that have got deposits in the bank better get on board with the bail-in and the glass sale or they're in serious trouble in the future. Hmm. Yes, well, Denise Braley, to finish off, you've mentioned one uh, vital reform, uh, the enactment of a, of a Glass-Steagall-type uh, legislation that separates the investments from savings side of the banking 
industry. What other reforms would you like to see enacted in Australia? Well, I, I think the first one, we'll probably get halfway to there, is the commission structure of being able to buy a loan is not working for the consumer. It's making the banks wildly wealthy, but only at the expense of taking it off those that can ill afford to lose their homes. So I think that if we want some reforms in this area, uh, the best thing we can do is stop the commission structure. Now, the sellers won't want to hear me say that. Some, uh, there's a high turnover industry, so many that used to be in it will probably agree with me. Those still in it will be a bit concerned about that statement. But certainly that is the, um, the only thing I agree with ASIC on there. They've been calling for that for some time. But I really go back to why can't people, if they want a mortgage loan to enter into the risky bubble property-driven market right now, why can't they just be allowed to walk into a bank and say, I would like a loan? Now, some people do that. But all these brute people I'm talking about, which is the majority of these loans that create the big volume uh, of the loans, it, it is reported in APRA statistics uh, and to BIS that there's around an average of $130 billion, up to $200 billion a year just sold by the major banks of these lines. And we're saying most of that is interest only. Yeah, well, that is that is staggering 80%. These are staggering figures. Yes, mm. they are. Denise Braley, thanks so much for joining us here on The Renegade Economist. You're welcome.